Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 29th, 2020. My guest is author and journalist Frederick DeBoer. His book and the topic for today's conversation is The Cult of Smart, How Our Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice. I want to thank Plantronics for providing the Blackwire 5220 headset for today's guest. I also want to let listeners know that we now have EconTalk merchandise available with our new logo. You can find it at my website, russroberts.info. Feel free to look around while you're there. That's where I archive all of my stuff. Freddie, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks for having me. So this is a brave book. Uh, It's an unusual attack on the American education system as well as an attack on the American economic system. Let's start with the education part. You argue that the entire system is based on an illusion about what education can accomplish. What is that illusion? Sure. The illusion is that we can change at, in, in mass and at scale, dramatically change the distribution of uh, academic outcomes. So when we look at any kind of a metric, any kind of an assessment, we have a certain distribution of outcomes. Um, some people do very well. Some people do very poorly. Um, the whole system is predicated on the idea that someday we'll be able to make it so that everybody does well. Uh, this is uh, was to pick a, a very uh, obvious example, uh, No Child Left Behind, uh, which called for within 12 years from the time the law was passed, it called for literal 100% compliance with uh, with standards. It also said that every single year, uh, a a given class would have to outperform the class that came before it. Um, And so... uh, you look at uh, our system and you see that we have spent hundreds of billions of dollars. We've invested the time of an army of experts. We've uh, put our whole policy apparatus to work in trying to dramatically change the distribution of academic outcomes, um, and it hasn't worked. And in the most basic sense, the book is asking, what if instead of continuing to run into this brick wall that we keep running, running into, what if we assumed that uh, the distribution is more or less uh, something that we can't change, that there will always be students who are two standard deviations below the mean, for example, uh, and that if we can't change it, how can we perform harm mitigation to make the system less punishing on people who don't do well? And that's the, that's the basic lie. The basic lie is the assumption that uh, we necessarily can create major changes to the distribution of academic ability. You know, I, I wrote my dissertation on educational testing, among other things. And, you know, as you do in the dissertation, I read uh, thousands of pages of, of education policy and research uh, and uh, things written in newspapers and magazines. And what struck me was uh, how almost unanimously there was no discussion of the possibility of failure. There was no pessimistic impulse. There was no uh, opportunity, apparently, for people to say, uh, what if this isn't going to work? Um, and that's what I want this book to be. I want it to be uh, uh, a shot across the bow of the establishment to say, hey, what if, in fact, the reason why we keep not changing the distribution is because we can't change the distribution? 
So one of the provocative parts of this book is that you're critical of both the left and the right. So talk about the what you see as the myths that both the left and the right have about the education system's potential. Sure. So, I mean, the, uh, the, the, on the left, you have um, this really cheery and optimistic and plainly false uh, assumption that uh, if, you, uh, if we just tweak a few things in their environment, if, they, if we can pass a few uh, social programs and if we can uh, maybe make a few alterations to schools, um, all students will, will have equal opportunity, equal ability to perform well in an academic uh, uh, environment. Uh, there's, it's the really uh, sort of blind optimism in the ability of policy to change uh, everyone's academic outcomes. But there's every reason to believe that there are that there is such a thing as a baseline ability, that baseline ability varies within the population, and that some people are just more uh, 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 academically inclined than others and if you believe in that if you if you accept that premise then the attempt to make everyone equal or to have the equal uh opportunity uh becomes impossible um i'm on the right is a similar faith, but it comes from a, just from a different direction, which is that if we applied market mechanisms to uh, to schooling, then that's going to fix things. That if we have school choice in the form of uh, charter schools and, and school vi- private school vouchers, uh, that the competitive pressures will force uh, these schools and, and teachers to teach better and to um, uh, and to uh, churn out students who are uh, excelling academically. But that, again, is based on this this notion that there is no such thing as a student side factor, right? Like it's based on the notion that there is no no sort of a baseline of ability or intrinsic ability or underlining ability that students have. Um, and it is contrary even to uh, the information, even to, uh, to the beliefs of people who press for uh, for more market mechanisms in schools. So RAND education is very much a kind of neoliberal education policy shop. Uh, they are very pro-teacher uh, teacher uh, merit pay. They're pro-charter uh, school. They're, uh, they're pro the market mechanism in schools. Even they estimate that student side factors are four to eight times more powerful than school side factors in determining outcomes. And so I think conservatives just have a different myth, which is, you know, a common conservative myth, which is, you know, the, the market mechanism will fix everything. And before we go on, you know, you are a self of just so listeners know, and you say this often in the book, you're a self-avowed socialist and a mm-hmm. Marxist, and you're very mm-hmm. critical. The reason one of the reasons the book's entertaining intellectually entertaining. It's also very uh, well-written, easy to read. But one of the reasons intellectually entertaining is that you're very tough on the left, even though you are coming from the left. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the you've got, it's, it's a very interesting situation in education because you have, it's one of the places where there's the clearest divisions within what we would broadly call the left. So there's the sort of uh, neoliberal left, which um, pushes for charter schools, sometimes for private school vouchers, for merit pay, for uh, getting rid of teacher tenure. And then you have the more tra- more traditional labor left um, who supports uh, teachers and teacher tenure and teacher unions and believe that uh, the problem is not, uh, lies doesn't lie with our teachers, but with the conditions in which our students live. So that's, uh, you know, an, an interesting war that's going on. But it, it, to my to my mind, it, uh, both sides sort of miss the picture. Um, and I think it's a very reductive vision of human equality that they're embracing when they push against the idea of any kind of baseline ability. So 
um, people say to me, well, you're saying that some students have lower baseline ability. Um, and so you're saying that they're unequal, that, that they are not as good as other, other children. But of course, the whole premise of the book is that um, we shouldn't be using academics as a stand-in for a, a kid's value or, or, or ability to be, to be equal, right? In other words, I mean, exactly what I'm arguing is that, um, is that those kids are not less equal, they're not less valid, they're not less valuable simply because they don't have the same ability in school. Um, and I think that the left should know better, um, but uh, unfortunately, ideas about things like baseline ability are extremely controversial on the left right now. Yeah, so let's let's try to dig deeper into that idea because uh, about uh, differences in baseline ability. Because you know, I am I agree with you a hundred percent on that part of the of the thesis, and I think that I agree with you that both the left and the right pretend it isn't there, which is that uh, some people are more academically inclined than others, and there's a limit, and it may be quite large <laughs> that limit as to what a an institution like a school can do about that. Uh, the myth that everyone has an equal chance uh, leads to, the, I think, the stupidity that everyone should go to college uh, because that way uh, they'll all have high salaries, which I think is ridiculous. Uh, not mm -hmm. everybody is, is capable of going to college and excelling in the kind of college experience that might augment one's ability, at least. I also think there's a challenge that – and I, I, this is a, a criticism I have of the book because – I think you focus on this as well. It's a different kind of myth, and I want you to either clarify it or disagree with me, which is okay. to focus on test scores and, and uh, grades as a measure of achievement and potential and talent. And I think it's such a – I think you agree with me, that even though you don't say it explicitly in the book all the time. It's such a narrow and, to me, non-humane measure of, of value or success – and yet our education system and the educational reform movement is overwhelmingly focused on this, as well as the so-called gap, uh, say, mm -hmm. by gender, race, poverty, whatever it is. And I just think that's just a, a mistake. So react to that. Yeah, uh, so I absolutely agree with you that that just looking at people as test scores and graduation rates and the other uh, prominent metrics uh, is uh, very reductive. Um, I should have made this more clear in the book. When I talk about – when I casually refer to um, academic ability or – I try to avoid talking about intelligence as much as possible in the book and prefer to talk about academic ability, which I think captures the idea more. But when I talk about intelligence, um, I'm talking about the kind of – ability that is rewarded within our current system. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm not denying that there are multiple intelligences. I'm not denying that there are multiple ways to be smart. In fact, you know, again, a, a, pretty much the point of the book is to say that there's all different kinds of ways for a human being to be a valuable human and to be a smart human. But when I talk about them casually in the book, what I'm talking about is the kind of smart that is that is valued in the system, the kind of smart that enables someone to, you know, go to Princeton and then get a job at Google. That is a, that is a narrow sort of band of academic ability. It's, it's a, you know, over, um, you know, decades and decades of um, colleges sort of sharpening what they want and businesses sharpening what they want from college graduates on the job market. Um, so I don't mean to suggest that, um, that there aren't different kinds of intelligence, only that um, the ones that concern me in the book most are the ones that, um, result in financial reward. 
you come perilously close, I'd say. Maybe maybe I'm overstating it. You come perilously close to suggesting that schools can achieve nothing. And I don't think you believe that. So tell me what you think they can achieve, if if anything. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind that uh, they can, that there can be, I mean, look, I, I quote, uh, or, or I, I quote someone quote, uh, citing um, uh, quite a number of studies demonstrating that uh, random selection into different schools makes no difference. Um, and there is a lot of this in the literature. Um, Explain that. Uh, but, Explain what you mean by that. Sure. So uh, uh, there's a number of studies that have uh, been that have shown where uh, due to some quirk or uh, uh, or some new policy or just some some change in in schooling somewhere, students end up being randomly selected into different schools than the one that they were in that they were in before. If you believe that schools have dramatically different levels of an underlying quality and that 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 quality can then result in dramatically different uh, outcomes for kids, you would expect that um, kids being sorted into these different schools would have uh, demonstrably different outcomes. Uh, outcomes, right? Because if you were going into the smarter, the better school, then the kids will perform better on uh, outcome on various educational outcomes. If they go to the bad schools, quote unquote, bad school, then they'll perform worse. And what a, a raft of research shows is that, in fact, when you have random selection into different schools, um, it doesn't re- really result in uh, in any uh, uh, one sort of uh, change in, in a student in the the group of students' lives. In other words, they don't perform differently based on uh, which school they're randomly selected into, which is what you would expect if the strong version of schools are where we're going to change things would happen to be. Um, and there's also things like. So, for example, um, you know, the, the, the test high schools in New York and Boston. So the, these are schools that are public schools, but they require you to pass a – to take a – earn a certain high score on a uh, on a, a standardized test before you can get into the school. They're extremely competitive, and they produce lots of incredibly uh, successful alumni. Yeah. So people say – Hey, these these schools are uh, are really high quality because look at these alumni. But when we do look at uh, them with what's called the last in and last out model, sometimes, which is um, you're going to be kids clustered near the cutoff score to get into the school. Some kids will just barely have made it in. Some kids will just barely have not made it in. You take a look at those two groups of uh, those two groups of students. So very equal in ability, just. They happen to not get into the school, the ones who perform below the cut score. We take a look at their life outcomes after after the fact. Uh, did they go to college? Did they graduate college? Did they get a job? How much money did they make? There's no difference in those populations. In other words, placement into the test school, which is supposed to be this incredible boon for their lives, makes no difference in their life outcomes. That kind of research. So let's think about some other research that is out there. I mean, of course, all research is flawed in different ways, some more mm-hmm. reliable than others. Um, just watching a video, I don't know how to pronounce his name, it was Carl uh, Wieman or Wyman uh, out of Stanford, Nobel Prize winner in science, mm-hmm. who's arguing for the virtues of what we might call the Socratic classroom, where students engage with each other over questions rather than consuming uh, wisdom passed down in lecture form from the teacher. So two groups of students randomly assigned at the same university. One group gets uh, the lecture, write it down, get tested on it. And the other group gets, here's an interesting question, get in a group, argue about it with them, see how it goes. 
et cetera. Um, enormous differences claimed for uh, the outcomes of how much learning takes place in those two environments. And I'm sympathetic, very sympathetic to that idea. I might, might mm-hmm. be my own bias, of course. Um, I have a certain romance about education that, that you're working at <laughs> to reduce. So I enjoyed that part of your book uh, a lot, forced me to take some of my uh, long-held beliefs uh, a little more uh, open-mindedly. So I appreciate that. But certainly there's a lot of research that shows that the kind of classroom matters. There's research I a little bit skeptical, I'm very skeptical of, but it shows that you know you, uh, certain teachers can have an enormous impact on a student's economic future. That you know that's um, I, again, I'm I'm not a big fan of that work, but it's it's also out there. Mm-hmm. Do you not think anything matters? Obviously, home home environment matters, and, <laughs> and certainly the the given endowment of the student's ability matters. But you don't think we can make a difference at all in the classroom? I mean, I think that we can, but the first the first thing is we can probably move the metrics uh, to some degree, the metrics that uh, that the system seems to care about to some degree. I think it's extremely hard, as you've just been alluding to, to know which research to trust. So, I mean, I, I say this with total respect for educational researchers. Educa- educational research is hard because you're so you're so often dealing with. Uh, small effect sizes and really big variances, right? I mean, that is kind of the kind of the. Sorry, go yeah, ahead. And, and the most important thing you care about is not observable. So it's um, which is your say genetic endowment or your natural bill, whatever you want to call it, that you're highlighting is often unobserved. <laughs> yeah, and also, I mean, um, very often it's impossible to randomly uh, assign students to condition, right? Because th- they're in classes and they, they you can't teach one class, uh, you know, something to individual students in that class and something different. To, so that's that's a difficult thing. So it's um, it's just hard to know what to trust in the research. Now, I do think, you know, there was a high quality meta study a few years ago and it it said, like, look, uh, what appears to work in uh, raising students' uh, uh, test scores, which again, I think that's reductive, but that's what people care about. Uh, and the first f- finding is simply that you know, and it listed things like smaller class sizes, teachers uh, get, getting special training, uh, uh, the use of technology in the classroom, like the internet, whatever. Um, the large majority of the things were statistically indistinguishable, had effect sizes statistically indistinguishable from zero, right? So the, so the error, bar, error bars cut across zero, right? Um, uh, which, you know, I would say, again, given – uh, the situation in educational research is not that surprising. He did find some things that worked well. So, for example, the, the strongest effect size, which is about 0.4 of a standard deviation, was found with a small small group tutoring, uh, and it, it seemed to be a robust and uh, uh, real uh, effect. Uh, it's interesting because in these debates, you so often, uh, you so rarely hear about something like small group tutoring. Like it's not like th- that's not one of the political footballs in, in education. I do think that there are things that we can do on the margins. The the question is is when we look at the at the overall distribution of where students are in their performance bands, right? In a, at a very early age, and I quote research to this effect in the book, at a very early age, students seem to sort themselves into relative ability bands, and those students tend to stay in those bands throughout their academic lives. Now, is that 
Was it everybody? Of course not. Of course, there's exceptions. Some kids, um, they suffer. Their parents go through a bad divorce, and and their uh, education falls apart. Some uh, poorly performing kids meet a new mentor, and they change their life. And but at scale, right? I mean, if aliens came to Earth and observed American educational outcomes and activity, one of the things that they would observe is that people tend to stay in their ability band. Um, and the question is, is could uh, these interventions at the school side dramatically change that uh, that uh, outcome? I mean, uh, educational mobility is a whole nother discussion about whether that's even desirable. But um, uh, I'm just not sure that uh, what we from what we know about the, the power of schools and teachers, that they can dramatically change the underlying distribution that we observe. So it's not that they don't matter. And of course, the other point is that, um, of course, schools matter, right? It's just they don't uh, always matter that much when it comes to the metrics that we care about, like graduation rate and standardized test scores. I think you can have a school that's a nightmare for kids that is a cold, unfriendly place with cold, unfriendly teachers that don't uh, that don't um, uh, do anything to uh, inspire their kids to to uh, creativity, that don't um uh, present uh, a, a welcoming social uh, aspects. Um, I think, of course, those those things matter. Unfortunately, they're just not the kind of things that people seem to care about in our uh, education reform debates. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I've said before on the program that you know our current high school system prepares you for college, which is weird, given that not everybody goes to college, and certainly not everybody excels in college and. A lot of people don't graduate from college once they get there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, once they get to college, they're encouraged to take a career path to major in STEM or business, as you point out. I think the largest single major uh, mm-hmm. in the United States. These are not um, contemplative or introspective uh, areas of study. They are areas that emphasize the acquisition of a skill set. Nothing particularly wrong with that. Uh, but it's a particular. It's a different, narrow version than preparing someone for a test. It's uh, it's not irrelevant, and it often leads to very productive and valuable uh, members of society. And by that, I mean people who make other people's lives better in all kinds of different ways. Uh, but it's a kind of narrow slice of the population, which is part of your point. We can debate how big that is. Well, let's talk about people at the at the in the bottom half. And, and mm-hmm. as, as you and I know, and even some non-academics know, there will always be about half of the population in the bottom half. This is an yeah. unpleasant truth. Part of your books are, is pointing this out relentlessly. Not expl- I think you pointed it out once, but uh, it, 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 it's a fact. Now, my, but where I disagree with you is, is on this area is, is the significance of that. So it can certainly be the case that the bottom half can never achieve in test scores or in academic success and possibly, well, I wouldn't say salary, I'm going to disagree with that, but certainly on the, the standard uh, things that people aspire to that are kind of narrow, like test score grades, getting into an elite u- university, the, mm-hmm. those things, um, you know, half half the population is going to, is going to, struggle with with that they can't not everybody can go to an elite college obviously but surely you can increase the skills of the bottom half of the population without i mean that's certainly doable without saying i can catapult them into the top half 
right? And isn't that, doesn't that make a difference? So isn't well, it I more mean, than just relative standing, the fact that these bands of, of ability are fairly constant over a lifetime? I mean, this is, in fact, the uh, I think one of the ways in which I think you've hit upon one of the ways in which our educational debates are under theorized because uh, we you're talking about absolute learning. And when we talk about about education, people tend to think that they mean absolute learning. So, you know, little Johnny has X amount of knowledge. He goes to school and he gets X plus one amount of knowledge and his his learning has increased. Um and uh, I, I agree that's a noble goal. The good news is that we might as well declare victory if uh, 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 our job is just to make people smarter in an absolute sense because we know for the entirety of the 20th century and continuing to, uh, to today, successive generations of people have gotten smarter and smarter. So you've got, you've got the Flynn effect named for James Flynn and an intelligence researcher whose research has found that people have just been getting smarter all the time. And we know that... Uh, that's true of our of uh, our demographics that we worry about the most. So, for example, uh, uh, black children, black students, we know we have a special interest in them because um, of achievement gaps that have been very persistent. But uh, an, a, a uh, black third grader uh, from right now um, blows away a black third grader from 15 years ago uh, in terms of uh, what they how they can score in absolute learning. Um, and so we might as well declare victory if that's if that's what we're really concerned with. The problem is is the system is set up to value relative position, right? Um, I mean the the whole college. Uh, 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 entrance game, which is this just incredibly draining and uh, uh, dispiriting mercenary climb up the up the ranks for uh, for our you know fourteen to eighteen year olds, um, are are all purely about relative about relative learning. Uh, Yale is looking at your class rank, right? They want to see where you are relative to your peers. Uh, your SAT scores. Uh, it's not. It's not the the number itself. It's the number relative to the people who you are competing against. Your grades. Uh, you know, there's wildly different levels of grade inflation in different high schools, and so uh, your grades can't be taken as uh, important in, in an absolute sense, but they have to be instead dedicated to uh, a relative sense. And when we get to the part where we're handing out the jobs. Um, if everybody gets better, and I want everybody to get better, and I think that there are things we can do differently and do and do more effectively, but if everybody gets better, we're all still in the same place as a bunch of people com- uh, competing against each other, right? Um, if I'm if I'm if I want to get uh, uh, a job, and I my competition uh, has advanced to the exact same degree that I have, then uh, I'm not sure how that helps you. Well, I think it does, and it's I, this were one of the places we disagree. I think it's the reason that standard of living in the 20th century had such an extraordinary change. So mm-hmm. we we all moved up in whatever you want to call it credentials. You know, let's be mm-hmm. overly cynical about the value of education. I, I'm not to, as cynical as some uh, say Brian Kaplan, a former mm-hmm. a past econ de, past econ talk guest, but. Mm-hmm. I do think there's a signaling aspect to it, and I do think there's a zero-sum aspect to the elite college scramble. I would mm. suggest that that scramble is partly among parents, <laughs> parents yes. who want to brag about what school their kid got into. Um, yeah, I think you can go to about – I think there's about 80 to 100 schools 
you can go to in America, study chemistry, study computer science. There might be more than 100. Uh, there are mm-hmm. only five schools in the top five, uh, but right. there's a there's hundred good places you can learn to code well, uh, learn right. how a, a cell works, um, and uh, learn about accounting and finance if you want to go into business. And so, you know, some of this elitism game is, is I just think, it's in the heads of, of a certain small group of people in a set of urban uh, areas. And, you know, I think for both well-being, financial reward, I think people could do fine going to lots of those other places. So I'm not as discouraged as you are. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that people can go – look, I think that the the evidence is pretty clear that the median college graduate in, in America today – so. Uh, not uh, Joe Elite, but Joe Average from from uh, State U uh, oh. is doing is doing okay. Is doing fine. Yeah, uh, I, I think that that's clear. Um, I worry on a couple of levels. The first one is that um, you know, so only a third of American adults has a college degree. Um, the ones who don't have college degrees, some of them, I don't doubt at all that there are people who um, have not gone to college because of circumstance, even though they have tons of ability. And we could, and we should certainly hope that those people could get into the system and come and thrive. But a ton of people who are not in the college system have self-selected out because they know that they don't have the temperament or the ability to succeed well in college. And so if people are really are stuck on getting everybody into college, um, we've got to grapple with the fact that, look, we already have a retention crisis in this country trying to get people to the end of their degree. We already have uh, a huge problem with people dropping out after the first semester of, of college. Um, that's only going to get worse if we move more marginal candidates into there. And the other thing is that um, I, I think that, you know, we have to ask how much slack there is in the system to uh, absorb more college graduates uh, compared to the number of jobs. So uh, in the book, I say research from the National Bureau of, Ed- of Economic Statistics. No, no, no. The National Bureau of Edu- Edu- uh, Economic Research, yeah, excuse yeah. me, uh, NBER. Um, uh, a couple of researchers took a look at the uh, college wage premium from 1890 to 2005. And they found that to a remarkable degree, and that's their words, to a remarkable degree, um, the college wage premium is uh, – a function of the ratio between the number of jobs requiring a college degree and the number of workers who have a college degree. In other words, the the more jobs there were relative to the degree holders, the more the wage premium grew. The more uh, degree holders there were compared to the number of jobs, the value of the degree declined. Um, and the question is, is can we continue to pile more and more college graduates into the system knowing that the more and more people who graduate, the fewer and fewer outs there are in terms of jobs on the market? Um, I, you know, if you look at the um, latest um, Bureau of Labor Statistics jobs for progressions, the top uh, field that's going to grow is not STEM. Um, it's uh, it's service jobs, service positions. And the, the single most um, uh, highest growing jo- job, uh, the one that is projected to grow the most in the next several decades, uh, is home health aid, 
which is not like a, a high education medical position. It's basically a, a, a job that does not require an education at all. Um, and it's to just go and take care of people in their homes. Um, and so I'm just, I'm just nervous that if the, if more and more of a higher and higher percentage of people go to college, then the harder and harder it is for them to find a job. And I, and uh, you know, we mentioned those those business majors, 350,000 of them graduating every year. It's no wonder that they only have all right outcomes based on some of the metrics I've seen, because they've got 350,000 people who are competing for the jobs they want. Right. And that's my fear. Yeah. I I think, you know, again, we agree that, that this idea that pushing everyone into college is, just an illusion that somehow this premium will be maintained in the face of a larger population going. I think there's a lot of reasons that premium won't be maintained. It's not just supply and demand. It's the Mm. quality, skill set, talents of the people who will become future college graduates will not be the same as current ones, and it would be a Mm -hmm. mistake to assume they would therefore earn the same premium. Uh, Again, I would emphasize, though, that you can be very successful in life without a college degree. Uh, In my the data that I remember saying, maybe I have this wrong, and we'll correct it if I, in the notes if I am wrong, but I think the 75th percentile of high school graduates makes more than the 25th percentile of college graduates, suggesting that there's a lot of variation here. It's not a golden yep. ticket, uh, yep. getting a college degree, and, and only going to high school and not going to college is not a, um, you're not sentenced to a life of, of misery. For me, and, and let's turn to this if if you'd like, and you can you can react to the other thing I said if you want. But for me, that I'm worried about uh, the people in that bottom twenty five percent of the population in terms of skill set who don't really have a chance. That they don't have the aptitude to become calculus, uh, uh, getting an A in calculus. As you point out, it's not everybody can do it. No matter how hard they try, it's not their fault. It's genetic, mm. or their parents, or it doesn't matter what it is. It just it's not going to happen. Or you could argue the amount of effort it takes for it to happen in that tutoring set, as you described poignantly in the book, is so large um, that that it's it's just it's not realistic to to assume that. So, you know, what do we what do we hope for for those folks? And I think there's two aspects of what we hope for as a as a as a community and a society. One is material well-being. I think you know the people in the bottom quarter of the income distribution in the United States actually have pretty decent material well-being. There are people, of course, who, who struggle badly, but a lot of them do, do, do pretty well. What they, on material means, relative to, say, 100 years ago or even 50 years ago, the harder mm-hmm. question to me is about dignity and is about prestige, status, self-respect, self-worth. You write at one point, quote, the notion that academic value is the only value and intelligence the only true measure of human worth it is pernicious, it is cruel, and it must change. So I don't totally disagree with that. Um, I, you know, I think that attitude is out there, particularly among educated people, people with advanced degrees, I think overvalue what they've achieved. Um, but I do think there's an issue of people who are not doing something prestigious and whether they can have a, a good life. And I think that's the, mm-hmm. and by good life, I mean broadly defined. I think that's the, that's the key question. And I think education should be re- structured, re-made, allowed to experiment to give opportunity to people who aren't going to, to Princeton, even to Stanford. So I think the, the – um, 
and now I'm going to come back on you. I'm going to give you a hard time, Freddie, because I'm one of those neoliberal okay. charter school fans, uh, okay. and more than that, school choice fans. Isn't part of the problem is that we have this monolithic public school system that pushes people in this direction that in a real world where people would want different choices, there'd be more choices. And the current choices are terribly narrow. So it's a lot. I apologize. That was a lot there. So react to any part of that you feel like. Well, no, it's fine. Um, well, look, um, the monolithic aspect, I would agree with you. Uh, I think one of the things I make clear in the book is that I want um, dramatically uh, looser standards and more uh, available programs, if you know, fiscally possible, um, so that students can make it their way through high school and through college um, with facing less onerous standards and more able to craft a, a particular pl path through education that works for them. Um, where, what is the source of the monolithic st structure of American education, though? Um, the, the tightening standards has also been a key element of the school reform movement. Uh, the, Bill, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation essentially passed uh, Common Core on their own. I mean, the, the speed with which they were able to institute Common Core uh, uh, was uh, incredible. I think it's 41 states are, are Common Core uh, states now. Um, and uh, to me, I mean, Look, a lot of this goes back to education being under theorized again. A lot of the same people who uh, celebrate things like the Common Core also say we need more innovation and dynamism in teaching. But standards are the opposite of innovation and dynamism, right? Like you can't you can't have it both ways. You can't say I want uh, 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 educators educators to be more flexible and to offer more alternatives and for there to be different choices for kids to be able to uh, to to go through and then I'll say oh but also um, let's make sure that every student in the country has the exact same performance standards. Doesn't make sense. Yeah, I agree with that. I I think the um, the Common Core, No Child Left Behind, all of these national top-down attempts to deal with the current system are, are really depressing. Uh, we, you know, we agree on that. I think there, well, there's so many things wrong with them. Um, I guess the difference is, is where you and I would go someplace different, what would be better than that? Um, mm -hmm. I, I, let's, look at the, let's look at the underlying issue, though, that, that you focus a, the first part of the book on, which I thought was so interesting. I'm going to read you a quote from the book. Um, Everyone understands that in the domain of athletics, we are most certainly not born equal in ability. But this thinking is anathema when applied to academic aptitude. It frequently seems as if progressives only believe in evolution from the neck down. And this sclerotic attitude is not just necessary. It is potentially crueler than the alternative. I want you to expand on that. What's cruel about this idea that, I mean, I think it's, I agree with you. I think there's a natural distribution of athletic talent. Um, I can, you know, it let's, well, I'm going to give you your due. I, I don't think the analogy works perfectly, but it's certainly true that I can be taught to run faster, but I will never be fast. I was not given the muscle and, mm -hmm. and coordinating ability to be a fast runner. I could certainly get better with training. Certainly a tutor, like we talked about, could make me a better runner. Um, just like a tutor can help a, a student who struggles in math get a little bit better at that, but they'll never become, there's a limit. There's a limit. Uh, but why is it cruel? Talk about why it's cruel. 
Sure. Um, I, th- I, I cite some sort of enlightenment thinkers and Thomas Nagel and, um, and Burke uh, in the book uh, to discuss the, the, this idea that um, if something lies outside of your control, you sh- it, sh- it should limit – that should limit the degree to which we uh, determine that thing's impact on your life. In other words, if you can't control your natural endowment for being good at school, if you just – you know, again, for whatever reason, if it's genes, fine. If it is uh, your parents or your environment, fine. For, if for one way or the other, you can't control those things, um, and I, I do believe that we're not uh, all under – complete control over our academic outcomes, then it becomes cruel to base your life on those outcomes. I mean, somebody who, uh, for which whatever reason, is in the, let's say they're in like the bottom 10% of the ability distribution, uh, or even for, ignore ability if they're in the bottom 10% of the, of the outcomes, right? Um, that is a person who might in contemporary America um, live in some rotting rust belt city, uh, uh, go on disability as the only ma- means to, uh, uh, to contribute, to sort of earn enough money to, to live, uh, get addicted to Oxycontin, right? Like the, the, the stakes for this stuff is very, very real. Whereas a, a, another person who has in the top 10% uh, who came from the same background may, might find themselves, you know, getting an, a nice job in Brooklyn somewhere. somewhere. Um, if the, if we believe that a great deal of the determination of our outcomes is out of the hands of the individual, then it would seem to me to suggest that uh, we should not let those outcomes be uh, too negative, that uh, it is cruel to force people to live with the consequences of something that they never chose. So that's, I think, the best argument for socialism. Um, I don't accept it, but we'll, I hope we'll confront it in the next uh, half hour or so of this conversation. But I, I want to ask a preliminary question, which is that through most of at least American history, not world history, not human history, but through most of American history, the bottom 10%, whether they did well or not, uh, relative, obviously, we, by definition, again, there's, there's 10% at the bottom of the income distribution. Maybe the talent distribution is a little more complicated, but how about the people who struggle economically? It's always people who struggle relative to others. But often those people's children did better than they did, saw hope, saw a chance to use their gifts, and, and did what I would call flourish. The word I would mm. emphasize is, should be our goal. They, they found a way to craft a good life for themselves. Certainly, they, couldn't, they didn't have an equal chance of getting into the top half. Uh, mm. That's almost never true, probably, in American history. That would be a myth. And there are people who mm. I agree with who hold that myth, but that would be a myth. And yet, without the elite degree, without the elite skill set, burdened by certain disadvantages— they could still fashion a good life for themselves and not be stuck on Oxycontin and have an end in a death of despair. So something changed, um, I would suggest, in, in America over the last 100 years, 50 years, maybe 25 years. And I'm not sure it's something that actually changed. It could just be our perception of it has changed. Or it could be that our culture has has moved in a very ugly direction in terms of judging people and 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 making them feel – unhappy with themselves simply because they're not leading some kind of imaginary life. But I don't think that's mm. – I find that hard to understand. So take a shot at that. Um, so if I'm understanding you, uh, the question is, is the fact that 
people in the bottom 10% can carve out happy lives uh, sort of invalidates what I'm talking about? Is, is that, is that what you're getting that, at? I'm saying that not that they can, but through most of American history, I think they did. I, I'm going to pick an example, and I understand examples are dangerous. Their anecdotes are always dangerous. But I think about my grandfather on my father's side who dropped out of school in the sixth grade, became a peddler. Uh, when he, when he uh, eventually found a career he could make sort of a living at, wasn't particularly good at it. But his son and his grandson have done, and his children and grandchildren have done much better than he, he did, partly because they had other opportunities he didn't have, but partly because America, the whole system, advanced. And people mm-hmm. got more productive, as we talked about earlier, through no fault of their own, no effort of their own. Uh, you know, they lead a decent material life. And more than that, they lead a decent non-material life. They have many pleasures in life. Uh, I think that's still available to a large section of the population. I don't under, and I don't think it was any different in 19, I'm not sure it was any different in 1950, but it feels different now. It feels like, you know, like you said, that that image you talked about, the Rust Belt, failing uh, person struggling to find work, not having any self-worth, getting addicted to drugs. Is, is that What's it, what's different now than in nineteen say fifty or nineteen twenty? Did you do you think? I guess my question is: Do you think everybody in the bottom ten percent in the past had as had as equally desperate and unpleasant life, or is that a new phenomenon? That's the cult of smart. That this this emphasis on mm. education and and um, and academic ability has unfairly punished a, a group of Americans that didn't weren't punished before when education was viewed differently. So just as a preliminary, I think that um, something that you and I are just going to disagree about is um, – so I, in common with most socialists, I think that um, as society progresses and things get materially better, our definition of what is acceptable at the bottom must change too, right? In other words um, – Simply the, you know, the arguments of the, of the type, you know, a, a poor person today lives better than a rich people from 100 years ago. It doesn't mean anything to me because you, society has progressed and the whole point is to bring everybody along with us as we go. But um, I do think that the cult of smart is in play there. And I think that um, there is uh, an implicit value system in this country that um, just makes a lot of people feel like losers um, and that we have a, a – uh, the, the ability to uh, make people feel like their lifestyle is not valid um, if they don't conform to certain both cultural and economic uh, outcomes. I mean, like, let's for, for, even forget, set aside for a second at 10%, the bottom 10%. Um, you know, uh, once upon a time, going to get a going to a you know sort of low tier to mid tier uh, white collar job in an office somewhere um, was seen as a very noble sort of a thing to do. Uh, you you know you went to the office and then you you came home and you provided for your family and you had a, a house and a car, and, uh, two kids you know. Um, but uh, now our culture has completely ironized that lifestyle. It's completely rejected it and just declared it ridiculous. So if you look at a show like The Office or um, a movie like Office Space, um, you've got all these depictions or, or – um, uh, and there's others. There's other examples. Um, we've got all these, these depictions of the office life as being 
somehow pathetic, you know? And so it, there's just another way to be a loser that was once a way to be a, considered a, a winner. Um, I, I am not, don't feel that I have a strong enough grasp of the history to really be able to say why it was easier to be in the bottom 10% then than it is now. Um, the only thing that I can uh, that I can say is that I, I know that I have heard. I mean, I know that I've read uh, research in the past that suggests that um, your sense of uh, of how well you're doing in your own life is very often mediated by your perception of how other people are doing. Uh, and we have um, a, a, a systems now, uh, digital systems, social media, for example, that um, constantly put the successes of other people in our face all the time. Uh, and I think it compels people to feel like, um, boy, you know, I'm not doing well. I, you know, I should I should feel satisfied with the things that I have. But on Instagram every day, there's people living lives that I can't lead, uh, eating in restaurants I can't eat at, driving cars that I can't drive uh, living in homes that I can't own. Um, and so I, I think that, yeah, I think that there is a uh, an implicit set of judgments that's harder and harder to ignore in the digital age because it's just so in our face all the time. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt that that our perception of inequality is different than it has been in the past. Uh, that may be misleading. I think people also like to look at successful people. They enjoy it. It's true. Sometimes, as you say, it kind of depends who they are. Um uh, you and I, at least, in, uh, I'll say you, you've chosen a career as a writer and a journalist that's less lucrative than probably others you could have chosen. Through mo- some of my life as an academic, I took an, an, a large, I, 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 I refused to accept the premium I could have had had I chose something different, and I, and mm. I chose a life that was different. Uh, mm. I think that's a good idea. It's probably, it's a good idea not to take the job that pays the most money, that gives you the most townhouses and fancy cars and all that. I think that's good advice uh, in general. But, uh, and it's also true that that's in many ways maybe a little harder to make that choice today be, be, because of social media. I think that's that's possible. Um, I, I want to go back though to your earlier point about relative standing in socialism because okay. I think that'll help us segue into our discussion of more um, more philosophical questions that, that I'd like us to confront, which is the following. You said, you know, as a socialist, you think our standards of what's acceptable should change as our standard of living rises, what's acceptable for people at the bottom. And I think that's true whether you're a socialist or not. I think people have different standards, whether we should take them account in public policy is, is what you're claiming. Um, I think we ought to look at why that's happened. Like, what mm-hmm. is the reason that our standard of living is so much higher in America today? I don't think it's only – uh, I, I don't think the fact that a poor person today lives better than a rich person 100 years ago, that doesn't end the discussion. I agree with you there, but it's not irrelevant. Um, mm. And I guess, I guess the other thing that I'd focus on is, is the, I guess I'd call it the role of agency, the ability to feel autonomy and control of your life. And I think some of those white collar shows that your uh, the office shows, management shows that you're, that 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 lampoon that. They're partly the fact that those people are have a certain slavery about them, as as uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb would point out. He says, if you have a salary, you're a slave. Uh, mm. And obviously, people boss you around if you have a boss, uh, right. and that's no fun. Uh, there can be rewards beyond the monetary in those environments that make them worthwhile, but that's part of part of what uh, uh, what matters. And I think the maybe it's true. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm ready to concede this, but maybe it's true that people feel 
less autonomy in their jobs, right? It's really mm-hmm. hard to be a blacksmith today. You're not going to make you're not going to make good living. That, that we understand that 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 the world, the economy evolves and changes. So the fact that some things don't do what they did before, I think you know that's kind of okay. And accepting that is part of what lets us increase that standard of living. But my point would be that that change of the standard of living matters, but it's not the only thing that matters. The other thing that matters, I would argue, is dignity, autonomy, and agency. And maybe those aren't as as healthy as they were before, but I certainly wouldn't want to give up the changes in absolute well-being that have happened. And I think those are due to capitalism. Well, so this is the the question, which is – so I got into debate a few months ago with a friend of mine who's a libertarian, and I had I had cited him this statistic that I had found very interesting, which is that um, in the 1930s, one farmer could produce enough food uh, in one year to feed four people for one year. So one farmer, four people in one year. Uh, today, one farmer can grow enough food to feed 125 people uh, uh, in a year. Uh, so the productive uh, uh, output of agriculture has just grown to an astonishing rate. Yep. Not, not surprisingly, the number of people involved in agriculture as a, a occupation has gone way down. Yeah. Um, now, of course, he saw this as an endorsement of capitalism because of the great production values. <laughs> yeah. I saw it as saying, hey, look, we're getting to a point where we are – where we're so productive. We're so much more productive than we were uh, uh, 100 years ago. We're so much more productive than the Russians could possibly have been in 1917. Yep. Um, that um, we're reaching a place in which we should be able to believe that we can feed everyone – uh, because of the incredible productive capacity, and in fact, this is a Marxist idea. You know, it's it's really essential to say, uh, Marx said that a, a robust period of capitalist growth is absolutely a prerequisite for a socialist economy. That you you can't you can't go straight from feudalism to socialism, which is another reason why the Russian Revolution failed. Um, uh, you have to have a, a period of, of capitalist industrialization because capital is so good at that. And I, and I don't think any serious Marxist would, would deny that. The question is, is when do we come to the stage where we say, okay, we can probably put a roof over every head if we choose to do it because we are so productive, because of the miracles in, in, in growth in, uh, in, uh, in living standards in the West over you know, the last hundred years. Um, and so you know, to, to him, there was an endorsement of capitalism. To me, it was like, hey, maybe it's time. You know, okay. uh, dramatically higher standard of living sounds like an opportunity to, to, to care for everyone. Well, that's true in, in a small setting. It's definitely true in the family, uh, as, as Walter Williams likes to point out, and I like to point out, quoting him, the family is a, is a socialist institution. Uh, mm-hmm. Once we get wealthy enough as a family, we take care of all of us. Of us. We, we try to do that as much as possible, and I, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, we, we share that, and it's certainly true that the incredible productivity of the past, that the growth in productivity over the past decades and centuries does make a Marxist uh, or a more egalitarian vision possible. And I would argue we've done all that already. We've certainly mm-hmm. fed everyone in the United States to the extent 
that we have an obesity problem, much more than a starvation problem. There are people who struggle with food. Many of them just have trouble getting access to the government programs or charities that that work on that. They're homeless. They don't want to go into institutional settings, which uh, is a tragedy, but a reality. Um, mm. But I'd say we kind of solved that problem to the extent, so much so. And by the way, the, where I would uh, maybe bring you and your libertarian friend together, part of our productivity in agriculture comes from government programs that increase uh, knowledge about about farming. Part of it came from subsidies <laughs> that have yeah. that have allowed us to quote feed more than just our people, but that's some of those subsidies have caused damage. I think to yeah. foreign um, international uh, agricultural markets, and, and is a pernicious, uh, unintended yeah. consequence of our of the political power of farmers. Um, so, so the, we've we've solved that. We, we've 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 created a safety net. The difference, I think, between you and me is, I think that you want a much bigger safety. Net. You don't even want a safety net. You want something a different way of imagining uh, how citizens would interact with with the society at large. So lay out that case, um, because here's the fun part. Here's where we agree. I think you can argue, and I've done so in an essay on Medium, a three-part essay, and I I think by the time this airs, the third part will be up. So in the first two parts, I make the point that you make in your book, where we agree, which is, I don't think I deserve what I have. I have an incredibly blessed financial life uh, now. I didn't when I first came out of grad school, as I alluded to earlier, but I have a fantastic financial, uh, a financial, I have fantastic financial security. My children have certain advantages that other people's children don't have. I accept that. My success is partly genetic, <laughs> partly environmental. And the part that feels like mine, like how hard I work or how creative I am, you could argue that's genetic and environmental too. So this mm. whole idea that you can somehow you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and those who don't are failures. That I think I agree with you. I think that's that's a something of a myth. Something of a myth. Not totally. Mm. Something of a myth. The question is, what do you do about it? So I want to let you go first. <laughs> Talk about okay. I'll, so I'll accept your vision that the so-called meritocratic system we currently have is a bit of a uh, of a, of an illusion. And what should we do instead? Sure. So uh Look, I, in terms of the justification for a, a system like this, in light of all of the incredible increases the standards of living, you know, I live in the richest city, in the richest country in the history of the world, and 60,000 people in this city will sleep in homeless shelters tonight. Right? Tens of thousands more will sleep in the subway or park benches, etc. Um, we have – You're uh, in New York, not, I assume. In New York, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, we have uh, our, all of our increases in standards of living has not changed the fact that there are um, people who live truly desperate lives at the bottom, and I think there's a, personally think there's a moral imperative to take care of those people to a degree that we're not doing right now. I also think that there are um, increasingly issues that. Um, sure look like economic issues caused by the market. So, for example, again, living in New York, um, it's becoming impossible for 
regular people to live here because the housing prices are so high. Now, of course, there's many uh, conservative people who argue that that's because of uh, government regulation uh, that uh, uh, just depresses the market or that uh, uh, distorts the market, excuse me. And I, I'm not going to get into that right now, but um, I, I just think that there's a uh, uh, much more that we could be doing, again, as the richest country in the history of the world um, to help those of us who, who need help the most. Um, there's a huge eviction crisis coming in, in New York because of uh, uh, COVID-19 related uh, uh, problems. And also, uh, like uh, 20 million other Americans, I don't have health insurance, right? Um, so uh, there are systematic problems in our economy that need change, such as a Medicare for all single payer system, which has a number of advantages, uh, as you are aware. Um, I in the book I am a little bit agnostic about what what exact programs to put forward because there's lots of interleft debates about these things. So I talk about both a jobs guarantee and a universal basic income. These have become um, this has become quite a fight uh, among the left about whether which of these programs is superior. Jobs guarantee says that the the feds will uh, will guarantee you a job that you can do working in some productive capacity. Uh, uh, it, when you don't have a job and it'll be counter-cyclical and et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, the universal basic income says that the government will cut you a check and to in order to ensure that you can provide for yourself regardless of uh, your underlying economic conditions. Um, but one way or the other, I think that um, we have got uh, immense wealth at the top um, and uh, we've got a lot of need at the bottom. And I think that there's, uh, and I include the upper middle class, by the way. I think that sometimes some some socialists are uh, a little dishonest and only focusing on the upper class because if we're going to fund a real so, you know, Scandinavian-style social democracy, it's, we're going to have to increase taxes on the middle class as well, which we have to sort of accept that. But yeah, I want to skinny the distribution, right? Um, I want a, a, a higher floor and a lower ceiling to pay for it. So the where we agree is that it would be great to do something for those 60,000 homeless people. Uh, I, I just want to say I understand the arguments for Medicare for All. I don't find them compelling. Uh, I think mm -hmm. it would be a bad system. I'm willing to concede it would be better than what we have now because I think mm -hmm. what we have now is a horrible system, a mm – -hmm hodgepodge of private and public incentives. It's, I think, a disaster. Um, but that wouldn't be my ideal if I'm going to dream. But that's okay. That's not, that, that's not so important. I think you know, that's not the focus of our conversation, uh, mm -hmm. the nuts and bolts of, of healthcare. Let's talk about the 60,000 people that you know, are out there. And I, I, I'm sympathetic to your argument that in a wealthy society, uh, there's something um, – and we, as you say, it's not just a wealthy society. It's the, it's the wealthiest. You could argue it's the most materially successful city in human history, at the in the top half. And mm -hmm. yet, in the bottom half, there's you know people sleeping on sewer grates and and um, who are hungry in rags. And the question is, what do we do about that? H how do we mm -hmm. help those folks? And I think the where, where I part company and I. I don't accept the conservative um, – it's kind of, kind of a straw man, I think, on the conservative side that they just need to try harder or get up earlier in the morning or whatever. I think even th – I think most thoughtful conservatives understand that, that that's a special 
situation. But what are we to do for them? What do we know about how to help those folks? Uh, we offer lots of help right now. There, there's a bunch of government programs. There's all kinds of private charities doing creative work to try to feed those people, give them some help. Uh, these are you know, widespread in cities like San Francisco and New York, which have been fairly friendly to homelessness so that they don't get, you don't get rounded up anymore and you don't get put in jail and you don't get put in an in a, in a institution. And there's something beautiful about that, and there's something tragic about it. Uh, I don't think we know how to help them. And by help them, I mean actually help them. I don't I, – really what I mean is help them help themselves, which is what ought to be the standard. Uh, we certainly know how to provide a, you know, a, a soup kitchen, and they're out there already. So is it really lack of, say, political will that not enough people agree with, say, your philosophy that keeps us from helping those 60,000 people? I mean, look, it's a complicated question. I do think, again, so let's forget about Medicare for all and just say government guaranteed medical care. In other words, if there was a guarantee, if everyone had a guarantee of being able to receive care regardless of ability to pay, uh, then you would hope that a number of those people would wind up in the mental health system earlier and easier than than they do now. Of course, there's going to be people who resist that for very obvious reasons. Um, I also think that, uh, you know, there is a, a, a not very large, but to me, convincing literature showing that um, the most successful programs for housing for homeless people have been giving them homes, has been uh, has been uh, giving them apartments at uh, extremely reduced rental rates and, and setting them up inside of them. And for many people, this results in a, a permanent uh, return to uh, uh, the homed population. Um, the question, you know, to me, I mean, and this is just really gets back to a very sort of visceral um, underlying um, philosophy uh, of socialism and of politics is just, you know, um, it's difficult to do good well, but we have to try. And I think that, um, you know, if they were living with something like a jobs guarantee and Medicare for all, then they'd have a place to go to work and they'd have a place to go to to get mental health care if they need it. Um, those sort of things, I think, would make a difference. Um Will there, will there always be desperate people who resist uh, help? Yes, that's true. But, I can't deny that. But that's the thin version of what you advocate in the book. Um, what you advocate for in the book is a much broader measure of, of equality, uh, mm-hmm. a much more – not just a narrowed income distribution, which the current system does. The current system of taxes and transfers has a non-trivial effect on the income distribution. You can argue it should be bigger. But you're arguing for much more than just an expansion of – of that effort, you, you want a transformation of society where people's innate, innate ability, uh, for whatever reason that they come to the labor market with, is not the determinant of their, of their pay. Is that fair? I mean, to a degree, yeah. I mean, this is one of the things, I mean, a question that I've been getting um, uh, in interviews is, you know, um, will will the talented still have an incentive to perform well if you uh, are uh, reducing their, their reward? And I, I, you know, even in the world that I envision, um, talented people, smart people, they're going to do okay, right? They're going to do okay. Uh, n- no matter what, because again, they have that ability and they have that advantage, and um, you know they'll be fine. I got interviewed by the Seattle newspaper, The Stranger, um, in I think maybe February, and uh, they were asking me about the fact that Seattle is closing its uh, gifted student program, and and the reason for that was that um, uh, the uh, the 
program's racial demographics were so different from the racial demographics of the school system as a whole, and it was quite controversial. And so uh, the reporter was asking me, you know, uh, what about these parents who were worried for their gifted children? And I said, they'll be fine. They're gifted, right? Like the gifted kids are going to do okay, regardless of whether they have a special program or not. I'm I'm just not that worried that there's still going to be ambition. There's still going to be personal, uh, uh, personal uh, impulse, like personal um, drive. Uh, yeah, personal drive. Um, there's still going to be uh, 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 differences in in income, even even if you take it. If you institute every one of the the programs that I say, there's still going to be some pretty vast differences in income. So it just seems to me that, um, yeah, I want to uh, – my ultimate goal would be to change the system where your intellectual talents more or less determine where you end up in the distribution. But there's a lot of slack. There's a lot that could be done to uh, maybe make the rewards a little bit less um, – uh, pronounced for Stanford computer science grads who go to work for Google and the, and the uh, consequences is a little bit less stark for uh, those who struggle and then end up dropping out of high school. Yeah, the challenge, of course, is that the current system that we have is somewhat capitalist. Um, it still has a lot of supply and demand effects. It's mm-hmm. really hard to stop scarce talent from getting rewarded, whether it's in the, even in the NBA, which is basically something of a cartel, the National Basketball Association, uh, just having athletic ability gives you an enormous uh, economic leg up. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a certain justice in that, in that those folks entertain a lot of people, but you can argue as, as you do that they weren't those gifts weren't given to them. They did. They do work really hard, by the way. That's something I think has to yeah. be kept in mind. And I don't think they would work as hard. Is that important? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I just I think that high, highly talented um, and hardworking individuals are the kind of people who are self motivated and who uh, are goal oriented, even when there's not a you know the, the carrot on the you know on the end of the stick isn't that uh, isn't that large. I mean I, th- I think that uh, I, I just think that I, I, of the ambitious people I know, I think they'd be ambitious no matter what the context was, um, and they would find ways to climb a ladder even if um, we made a system where the uh, the with the reward and the and the the price of how well you perform uh, were both a little bit narrower. Well, I don't think they'd work a sixteen-hour day. They might work a nine-hour, ten-hour day still, or a seven-hour day, and that that will make a difference. Mm. But I I don't disagree with you totally. I think the bigger challenge for your worldview, which I'm I want you to defend, is that the people who've embraced your view fully have not has not turned out so well historically. Um, the, the 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 most dramatic small scale example would be the kibbutzim the kibbutzes of of Israel that mm-hmm. they still exist there, there's still some that have the social CDL but most of them were not palatable to the to the people inside them when they got older they left uh, the cultures the societies that have embraced that fully had a major problem with the phenomenon we're talking about which is effort uh, the truly the the top down control not not Sweden but Cuba, North Korea, Soviet Union, 
they had trouble getting effort. Now, you could argue that was a cultural difference that we wouldn't have, that we have a different cultural base in America. But how do you react to those, those, um, those historical worries? Well, uh, of course I'm worried. Um, I think that the effort is still worth being made. I think that um, one thing to bear in mind is that traditionally, you know, one of the one of the disadvantages um, communism had was that uh, traditionally the countries that to which communism were most appealing and the ones that had revolutions were the ones that were poorest. Right. In other words, because there were so many poor people in 1917 Russia uh, or in China in the 1930s and 40s, uh, for example, part of the reason that a redistributive state sounded uh, uh, like a great idea is because so many of the people were so desperately poor that the system couldn't possibly seem to get any worse to, to them. Um, Unfortunately, that meant that just utterly economically devastated countries were the ones that undertook uh, 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 communist revolutions. Um, again, I, I just think that uh, we have – first of all, there's, we have the potential to spread these ideas in, an, in a purely democratic way that uh, we can make the appeal not through uh, violent revolution but through the democratic process so that people can listen to what we have to say and make up their minds for themselves whether or not uh, uh, this system sounds better. But also that um, you know, if we do it, it's just a vastly different economic situation, a vastly different industrialization effort. I mean, uh, you know, uh, we wouldn't be going from a literal feudal, feudal economy with, uh, you know, desperately poor peasants uh, scrambling to survive. We'd be starting up with uh, a tremendous productive infrastructure in place that uh, could be put to use, uh, ensuring the good of all people instead of only the good of some. Yeah, I think the cultural aspect of it is what's disturbing. I don't. Um, I think it's a good arg. It's an interesting argument. I make the same argument for a more libertarian world that we're rich enough that we can afford it now. It's ironic, um, but I. But I think the um, there's a deeper question here that that can't be answered. That that I think a book like yours forces one to think about, which is mm. that. How much of what we observe around us in terms of well-being is the result of cultural, say, conceptions of the role of education or academic ability and our self-worth or how we look at our friends and neighbors? And I, and I think the flip side of that is that a society that, that ends programs for gifted children because they lead to inequality is going to have cultural impacts that maybe are not so attractive either. So, you know, we're both kind of um, – we're in the dark here. I don't think there's a lot of empirical work. I think it's fundamentally mm -hmm. a, an ideological and some sense a spiritual question of how we think the ideal society should be organized. And I would just close and I'll let you react to it and then we'll, we'll bring it home. But, you know, I think um, trying to solve these problems of meaning and well-being and equal or unequal treatment work very well work much better in smaller groups and trying to to do these at a society at the level of a society of heterogeneous strangers is um it, i think it's deeply unappealing to me obviously it's not to you but i think the for those who share your views i would encourage uh people to do these kind of 
social experiments at, at smaller at a smaller level, see if people like mm. it, still give them the opportunity to vote with their feet, which is what happened in, in Israel as it evolved into a different kind of society. And uh, you and I both share the challenge that our viewpoints, a minority viewpoint, yours is on the rise though. So uh, we'll see. We may get some movement at the at the, at the democratic through the democratic process. But what do you think yes. of this this um, this idea of smaller scale and, and this issue of cultural effects beyond just the the idea of the the policy change? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm on board with uh, small scale solutions. I mean, I, I have to be right. I'm, I'm an American socialist, which means that I don't have the luxury of assuming that anything that I believe is going to be instituted nationally anytime soon. Um, and I certainly think that you know we need petri dishes in which people can experiment and try new things and, and develop new experiences and wisdom about. Um, you know, for me, the hardest part of the book is figuring out how to change the cult of smart attitude, how to change the cultural and social expectation that your academic ability is this this determiner of your youth, of your, uh, your value. And, uh, there's not a lot of good answers to that question. I mean, I can uh, put out a documentary about this thing and say, hey, why do we do that? And maybe some people's mind will, will change. But ultimately, I think that culture uh, follows economics. And as long as we have a system that is handing out reward and is handing out the good life to people based on academics, there's going to be a powerful cultural force to, uh, uh, to compel people to say, hey – you, you, you know, your kid is only as good as their report card. Um, and so uh, ultimately, I think the economics have to change before the culture will change. My guest today has been Frederick DeBoer. His book is The Cult of Smart. Freddie, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks a lot for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.